1: But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash AmicusLive for tickets.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 16th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about where everyone landed on NCAA Selection Sunday, as well as the ESPN documentary on college basketball's greatest villain ever, Christian Laettner. We'll also discuss the ludicrous amount of player movement during the NFL's free agency period, And Bruce Arthur will join us to assess the NHL's Toronto Maple Leafs, who've had more real and fake controversies this year than most hockey teams have in two years, or maybe a larger number than two. Just insert a a number that sounds impressive. We'll move along. Uh, In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Mike Pesca will instruct you on how to fill out your NCAA bracket, and will hopefully not insult America's team, the North Florida Ospreys. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books "Word Freak" and "A Few Seconds of Panic," and a man who knows that ospreys, plural, is a bingo. How are you, Stefan? I hope they have a high seed.
0: The ospreys, because you know they have nests that are high up. <laughs>
2: Jokes high always funnier when, you explain, when you explain them. Explain yeah. them, uh, yeah. With us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of the Slate Daily Podcast, "The Gist" with Mike Pesca. How are you, Mike? I hope Gonzaga doesn't have a straight path to the final four because the zag. (laughs) Because they blank. Um, You may already know that Slate Plus members get bonus segments and ad-free versions of our biggest podcasts. But did you know that members also get interviews with your favorite Slate writers? They get Osprey talk. Mm
3: -hmm. Hot
2: Osprey talk. (laughs) Hot Osprey talk. Osprey takes. Don't egg us on. They get uh, audio versions, some of our most popular stories, and other goodies. 30% off tickets to our live events, for example. Um, but the bonus segments. I like the bonus segments. Culture Fest, PolitiFest. We've got them here on Hang Up and Listen. And if you haven't signed up yet for Slate Plus, you should note, maybe you don't know, the, the first two weeks are free. You can try it out. You get your benefits right away. Go to Slate.com slash Plus to get all of that stuff. Try it out for two weeks. Slate.com slash hangup plus. Um, before we get to Osprey talk, let's get to Wildcat talk. Which well, one? The uh, big ones? A lot of Wildcats. Or the other ones. There definitely is going to be Wildcats in the finals Villanova, Arizona, but
3: I think you speak of
2: the KY Wildcats. Yeah. Uh, they're the number one overall seed in this year's NCAA tournament. They should probably be the number two through six seed as well. Uh, John Calipari's team of future first round draft picks is an even-money favorite to win the title. Fellow number 1 seeds, Wisconsin and Duke are at 6-1. to one. Valparaiso is at 1,000-1, to one, according to people in Las Vegas, at least one of whom is probably named Jimmy, I'm guessing, based on past experience. At the other end of the line are UCLA and Texas, big conference schools with tough schedules and lots of losses, who made it into the field of 68 at the expense of smaller programs. Indiana, too. Your temples, yeah. Colorado State, Murray State. Snubs! Snub And now we get to snubbed. The snubbed segment. You've been waiting for this all year. Mike Pascoe. What about the snubs? On this issue of snub, the Larry Eustacey story, a lifetime television
3: <laughs> network. Um, Okay, normally my take, and this is my take, is that everyone who snub just needed to win another damn game, right? We all know that. So the question is, is it really unfair that UCLA, who was the team with the weakest resume, got in above Temple, who would have been the uh, next team? In, they said, not even Colorado State, not even Murray State. Yeah, I think it's totally fair. Think uh, UCLA is likely to win some games. The problem I have is... You know, whenever you make that choice, who gets in, who gets out, someone's going to be upset, and there's always a plausible case, and I guess you could screw it up so much that, you know, no one could even explain it, but they haven't done that for years and years, and with the field as big as it is, it's just never an injustice. It does seem, however, that the NCAA does not understand what playing games are for. Like, there is no reason why an 11-to-11 seeds, Dayton, which got under should be playing a play-in game, where UCLA, which is a less qualified team should be in the tournament already. They regard 11 seeds it's it's I know it's better to have more interesting games in those playing games, but there's no logical reason why you should play in for an 11 seed if the 12th through 15 or 16 seeds uh, are already in the tournament. I would say maybe not a 16 seed, but every 11 seed in a play-in game would trade that for hey, I'll take a 14 seed and I'm in the tournament day one.
2: Well, the NCAA committee decided that UCLA was better than the teams that are in the playing games. They have a superior seed, so right.
3: But they decided that Buffalo was worse, and yet Buffalo's there in the tournament as a 12, and you have to play in to be an 11.
2: Yeah. Uh. Well, it, it's the the concept is that it's the last four at-large teams where Buffalo mm-hmm. was a automatic bid. Which I agree. I agree with you that there's a certain illogic to it. I think. Rather than focusing on the individual snubbies and snubbers, there's a more kind of macro conversation to have about, you know, Texas, UCLA, and Indiana all have something in common, these last few teams that made it into the tournament and weren't even put in the playing games, which is that they're famous big programs that play in major conferences. And I started to hear this more this year, which I totally agree with and I hadn't heard in years past, the idea that major conference teams shouldn't get a leg up for losing a lot of games against a really tough schedule. That was Texas's main accomplishment was that they didn't lose to any bad teams, but they went 3-12 and 12 against teams that are in the RPI top 50. And, you know, Texas is 20th in the Ken Palm rankings because they played this really tough schedule, and they were competitive in most of those games. But you have to win games, and they were given so many opportunities. Apparently you don't. <laughs> they, were, they were given so many opportunities compared to a team like Murray State, who we don't know how they would have done against that schedule, but we know exactly how Texas does and will do against teams that are the best in the country. There's not really any mystery about the quality of this team. And the point of the tournament, or at least one of the points, is to see you know who who's better than who. And there's more of a question about how good a Murray State is. You don't want to reward a team necessarily for not playing anyone good, but you also don't want to reward a team for using its innate advantage and then, you know, losing all of of the games. Well, there's an underlying assumption at play in college sports that if you play
0: in one of the big conferences, you are better, period. There is an assumption that Texas is better than Murray State because of whom they play. And that doesn't mean – that. so even if they lose to all of the teams the way Texas did – at the end of the day, these are human beings who are looking at not enough data, frankly. RPI, we know, is flawed, and we've had that conversation before, and many other people have had that conversation. So, so I think there's just a lot of the sort of the mental presumptions, you know, happen in, the, in that hotel room whereby these men and women – are there any women this year? I don't think so. No, men, where the men sit around and say, well, Texas has to be better than Murray State. They played all these good teams. What other conferences got a lot of entries into the tournament this year? Uh, The Big East did, right? There's six teams from the Big East in the conference this year. Not clear that they are that much better than Colorado State or or Murray State or some of the other teams, the mid-majors that were snubbed either.
2: Well, according to Ken Palm, who we tout as recently (laughs) as last week as being the authority – on these things. These schools that did get in, Texas, UCLA, are way better than yeah. Colorado State and Murray State. They yeah. far outrank them in the Ken Palm rankings. But I don't think that that should be... The determinative issue. Because these these schools are apples and oranges. And then you're basically saying, well, Murray State can't get in because they're not an apple. Well, we knew that they weren't an apple all along. But the point of the NCAA tournament is just to, it's not just to line up all of the different apples. And... I. Th- Playing, well, it, playing a, a good schedule will get you to be very high in these rankings, even if you don't win the games. And I think that winning games, even if it's against a weaker schedule, that should count for well, something. On Temple, by the way, did play some very good out-of-conference teams, Duke,
0: Villanova. Didn't they crush Kansas by, like, 25? So I sympathize
3: with your Occupy Selection Committee boardroom sentiment, Josh, but I think the Selection Committee's job is to pick the best teams – with the restriction that you got to throw a lot of conference tournament winners in there. And then you pick the best teams and Texas is a better team than Murray state. I mean, I don't know they're a better team, but I would go by a number of things, things that we hail like the, like the Ken Palm ratings, like the Sagarin ratings, like every ratings I've ever seen. Also, this is the year the RPI died. There is, they just threw out the RPI. They're going by the BPI and one slice of the BPI, which is, I think, what's it called? The VCA. There's some ways to do the BPI that um, Stack Geeks like even better. And Texas has put up Good wins, a couple of good wins. Sure, Murray State didn't get the chance to play West Virginia. But aren't he, you going to put
2: up a couple of good wins if you play 15 games? Like the, point, the chance yes, they will win yes. three is pretty I, high. And you play that some of those actually, games at home? I don't think that that's
3: actually necessarily the case. I think that a good team playing much weaker opponents will beat the weaker opponents, and a good team playing strong opponents will sometimes uh struggle against the strong opponents. And if you look at what Texas did, beating Baylor in overtime – almost beating iowa state i mean we're talking two teams that if kentucky weren't in the mix this year you'd say have a plausible chance or still do have a plausible chance to make the final four and there's texas right with them and we don't know because murray state's never been right with them but it's much less likely that murray state would ever play those teams and also murray state isn't gonzaga isn't a 2 lost team they're a five-loss team against bad competition. So the reason they don't have 13 losses against the top 50 isn't just that they don't have 13 losses. It's that they don't even play really good teams. I know that there should be a reward, but if it's best teams, I have every confidence that Texas is a better team than Murray State, So even though even though that's not the fairest thing in the world.
2: So would you say that an NFL team that goes 4-12 and 12 is, like, really proven its worth? I mean, that's basically what Texas did, right? Against the teams that were basically on their yeah, level, well, if, they went... They went
3: 4-12. Sure. That's a great analogy. If the 64 teams that you had to pick to be in a football tournament included a bunch of college teams and the NFL teams, yeah, the NFL team that had two losses probably would beat Alabama.
2: Well, this would make more sense. if, if How's small that pitard conference... doing for you, Josh? <laughs> this would make a lot more sense if small conference teams never beat big conference teams. But that's just not true.
0: But they do, but they also don't get the opportunity to play them because a lot of big conference teams refuse to schedule them. So teams do what Larry Eustachia at Colorado State did, which is schedule some pretty good teams out of conference in an effort to end the season with a strong RPI. And like you said, Mike, that it's, it's not the determinative factor. The NCAA Selection Committee did use RPI, but only to batch teams and and then make determinations not to make in or out determinations. So Eustachie puts together a schedule that is likely to look good on paper and end with a great record, but ultimately it backfires on him because in the end, the committee says, well, they didn't play anybody good enough. And look, Texas played all these great teams, but Texas played all these great teams because they're scheduled to play all these great teams because of who they play in conference.
2: Do you guys really believe that the committee didn't care that it was Texas?
0: I think they absolutely cared that it was Texas. Or that it was UCLA. Or Indiana or UCLA. Sure. They're marketers, too. They understand that those games will get good ratings. And those games, ultimately, it's ultimately not going to make that much difference because Indiana, UCLA, Colorado State, Murray State, none of them is going to win the national championship or is likely to get to the final four. So it's really about the opening weekend and... Attracting and making sure that there are names there that people can talk about. The flaw in that line of thinking is that everybody loves it when Murray State's and Colorado State's and Belmont and Stephen F. Austin and Wofford get into the tournament because the announcers get to say Wofford a lot and we don't get to hear announcers say Wofford on national TV a lot.
2: But I just don't understand the committee must must get that right. I think it might be more subtle than uh, – or
3: subconscious than conscious, and I think the makeup of the committee is mostly the big conference people. But it's also – I'm not easy. sure that's true. I'm not
2: sure
0: that's true. I'll look that up.
3: Hold
2: the on. Utah State guy is the head of the committee.
3: I also think that it is easy to believe that if Texas goes on, you know, it looks good in four of their last five or three of their last four, people are paying attention. People want Texas to look good. Texas was a team that started the season really hot and were a top-ten team when they played Kentucky. It's just – it's – It's something like a heuristic when Texas shows glimpses of success or UCLA. You're like, ah, ah, that confirms. That's a team that's supposed to be good. That's a team that has goodness about them. And so you read into even maybe neutral evidence like 13 losses, right? <laughs> Less than neutral evidence and you look for the good whereas Murray State, you're only looking for the bad, you know? So, it's like a teacher who only calls on certain students and not others because of their predilections.
0: Josh is correct. Utah State is the head of the committee, the uh, AD at Utah State, Scott Barnes. Two women on the committee. Janet Cohn, Director of Athletics at North Carolina Asheville. Judy McLeod, Executive Associate Commissioner, Conference USA, and then the members of the committee, LSU. What,
3: what, what is she? Assistant, Assistant Executive Associate? <laughs> Executive
0: Associate Commissioner. All right.
3: All right members she, of the committee. Basically, the, she has the ear of the guy who has the elbow who has the guy of the shoulder of the ear of the guy who has I
0: have two hands in the air. We'll go Big Five Conference. Non, Utah State, LSU, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Asheville, BYU, Michigan State, Conference USA, Stanford, Creighton. Which hand does Creighton go on, Josh? Big East. Does that count as big? Big East, Northeastern. Five and five.
2: Um, Let's move on to the Christian Leitner documentary. We didn't really get to Kentucky and their dominance, but Kentucky is uh, prominently featured in the life and career of Christian Leitner. It's uh, called I Hate Christian Leitner, latest documentary in ESPN's 30 for 30 series. Not a masterpiece of filmmaking, but very fun even though, you know, it's just a bunch of archival clips and talking headshots. But it is kind of perceptive, I thought, about why we hate teams and athletes. Um, The structure of it is it goes through five points of why Christian Leitner is hated. Privilege, perceived privilege, that he came from this upper crusty background that turns out not to be true. Um, That he was white, that he was a bully. Very true. (laughs) Um, His greatness and his looks. I'm raising my eyebrows. Stefan, what did you... Think of the doc.
0: I was I was entertained. I I actually liked this. Um, a lot of this is a peek into the sort of twisted psyche of the fan, and and why we tend to think and form these conclusions about people that we know nothing about, other than watching their behavior on a sporting field. And in, Christian's, in Christian Laettner's case, it's totally understandable. I think we all understand why Christian Laettner was hateable because of Duke and the the reputation, um, the perception of what Duke was, white, privileged in North Carolina against two state schools as its main rivals. And the face, I mean, come on, Christian Laettner's face. Very punchable. Punchable. Punchable face. The He's way he carried his him. face. The, the way he, the, his demeanor on the court. You know, stepping on the chest of a player from Kentucky, very famously, a, a lot of glowering and elbowing and gloating and finger raising. So Christian Leitner was eminently hateable, and I think Christian Leitner acknowledges that he was hateable. But the thing that I don't think we we really get at is why Christian Leitner behaved the way he behaved. It was largely because he was 20 years old, and 20 year olds do stupid stuff. So now. Twenty-three years after Christian Leitner left Duke, you know, we see this gray-haired forty-five-year-old guy speaking very very sort of methodically and very rationally about who he was and and why he was perceived the way he was. And I didn't get the sense that Leitner feels sort of besieged in any way or that he is super resentful about what happened. He seemed very calm about the whole thing, which to me made it feel a little bit like a big hoax. Like Christian Leitner knew exactly what he was doing when he was in college. And now 20 years later, he still understands what he was doing in college.
3: Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the fault of the documentary, but to me, the racial aspect is giant, and you could take out a lot of those other things for other guys who are hated, and it's just a lot easier to hate well, to have an acceptable level of hatred against the white guy, JJ Reddick isn't particularly good-looking. He did go to Duke. There's nothing of a bully about him. He was hated. Bobby Hurley uh, was hated
2: while just, he played with Christian. Let's Leder. just rank all of the white Duke players white based on Duke how attractive players. they are. Just do a one through ten list. Well, let's
0: let's try to pick <laughs> so a the white Venn Duke... diagram with their. Hatred was Jay level Billis? Is...
2: I mean, who is the last white Duke player who wasn't hated? The good white Duke player. I mean, Bills wasn't even that good. Well, I think the documentary makes a claim, and I think an accurate one, that Christian Leitner in many ways created the hatred for Duke. Like, Stefan, you said that some of this was pre existing. There are pre existing conditions as far as the school being upper crusty and um, did I say upper crusty before? The school being yeah. elite, private, whatever. But Leitner was just this perfect embodiment. And I don't think it's been fully. You know, realized by the subsequent line of white Duke players. I mean, J.J. Reddick was kind of hateable, but he wasn't as good as Leitner was. He didn't have the success, and he wasn't as big of an asshole. Like, not an asshole at all. Grand Hill, Hill and Bobby Hurley talk about how they didn't like Christian Leitner. I mean, the reason that he was so hateable is because he was really hateable. He was kind of a jerk. He was. Not kind of. He was a jerk. I don't
3: cite I don't th- cite this source often. It's called Complex, but I did just look up uh, most hateable Duke players. Now this is a 2010 article, and beating Leitner is JJ Redick. So at
2: the time, There's some recency bias there. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's right. But that's what I was saying. At the time, he was seen as the most hateable one there was. I don't see how Cherokee Parks was hateable though.
2: He does have more neck tattoos than I think all other Duke players combined. I mean, there are a couple of things in the documentary that I didn't know. It was the um, leitner Brian Davis gay rumors and LSU? fans doing me proud as always, chanting Oof. faggot and homosexual to the tune of the FSU tomahawk shop, just getting filling up the offensive bingo card just in one stroke right there. Um, so that kind of gave me some sympathy for Christian Lehner. He did have to put up with a lot. And just college basketball was so... Big then, and the fact that that he was there for four years, years. I remember where I was for that Duke Kentucky shot. That I, I mean, I'm 35 years old now, and that Happy for, birthday, Josh, for people of my generation, like that was kind of a sports moment that stands out above really any other one from that period. Um, and that was the guy. Like he was more famous than maybe. Any other athlete in that period other than like Michael Jordan. Like Christian Leitner was the dude. He was the guy. And he was the he was the focus of our heat. The point
0: that you make about the four years is huge here. There was an ability to build up resentment and hatred toward not just Duke, the institution for being good at basketball. I mean, Hey, Kentucky has been really good at basketball for the last few years, but the faces are changing every year. It's hard to develop a relationship, love or hate with the individual players in college basketball today, the way it was 20 years ago before one and done. And, and Leitner, you know, wasn't good enough probably to have gone to the NBA after his freshman year or maybe even his sophomore year. He was good. But it certainly helped his um, development as a basketball player to stay, and it also helped his development as a jerk to stay and to become <laughs> an icon of all of these negative attributes that, you know, we've come to identify with him. I mean, I think it's most telling in the film is that neither Mike Krzyzewski nor Mickey Krzyzewski, his wife, really defends Leitner by saying he was misunderstood, they both acknowledge that he was a jerk to his teammates. You know, a lot of it is forgiven under the uh, the rubric of he was trying to motivate his teammates well, and, and get winning, under their skin. Winning
2: solves everything. Winning also, solves his, everything. His brother was a huge bully and seems like he passed it along. Like, that was interesting. His brother was very proud that, that he was sort of like the dick enabler for Christian Leitner. <laughs> he was and the creator. Leitner st- and Leitner seems like a big phony now. Like, you – kind of make the point that he knew what he was doing and now he seems to have like matured or something. Like the fact that our former intern Chris pointed out that Leitner now claims to be outraged about the five the Fab five documentary when he wasn't when it actually came out. He apologized to Aminu Timberlake, you know, over the weekend, even though he had always said that he never he didn't feel sorry for stepping on the guy's chest. It just seemed like a very calculated thing to do to promote the documentary. Like, it seemed, like I didn't find him any more likable now than, than I did then. No, he
0: comes off certainly trying to look sort of placid in the film. He's wearing a Christian Leitner basketball camp T-shirt. for am yeah, I mean, wearing right a Promotional now. Yeah. video. Aren't you wearing a Mike Pesca podcasting camp <laughs> T-shirt? Yes, but I am stepping on
2: a uh, fellow player. Hey, did the did the documentary get into his finances? It did not. Yeah, that was the one thing that it didn't mention was his real estate. Didn't mention well, anyone. he made
3: $60 million in the NBA, and it all came undone from a company called Duke Blue Devil Ventures, which broke ground in 1999, attended by Mike Krzyzewski and Senator John Edwards. And he apparently – I'm not going to use the word ripped off, but owes money that uh, he was contesting to such luminaries as Sean Merriman and, and Scotty Pippen. It all came from him and Brian Davis' ideas that basketball players need taller ceilings. So they wanted to build loft <laughs> apartments, this – of course, timed with us, real estate bubble and the fact that maybe Christian Leitner, famous non graduate, not the smartest guy in the world. So I don't think he
0: could
2: even he repay his
0: debts.
3: He didn't graduate? Well, maybe eventually graduated, but they were, remember
0: they refused to hang his uh, jersey because he didn't graduate. I was also That's not it. sold on the fact that Christian
2: Leitner enjoys
0: coaching children. All right. You might be stepping on children.
2: You might be thinking that this podcast stands alone a brave warrior standing on a cliff, swinging its sword and yelling to no one in particular. Who the hell cares? who's in the conversation for your MVP race, but now we are not standing alone. Hang Up and Listen is a part of the brand new podcast network, Panoply. Your slate favorites like the Gab Fests and Mom and Dad are Fighting and the Spoiler Specials and so on are part of it, as is The Ethicists from the Times Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, The Vulture TV Podcast, Whistle Stop with John Dickerson, Happier with Gretchen Rubin and a whole lot more. You can hear Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on all major podcast apps. And I bet if you do tune in, you'll hear Gretchen Rubin shouting, Who the hell cares who's on the conversation for best cousin at your family reunion? Be happier, damn it. Yeah. Is that basically the tone? Uh Uh-huh, pretty
3: much. Pretty much. She gets Joe Lunardi on to describe who's on the bubble for being a satisficer.
2: Uh, To hear some of the first offerings of the Panoply Network right now, go to iTunes.com. Slash panoply, that's iTunes.com slash P A N O P L Y. Last week in the NFL, the Saints traded all pro tight end Jimmy Graham to the Seahawks. The Rams and Eagles swapped quarterbacks, with Nick Foles going to St. Louis and Sam Bradford to Philly. Chip Kelly's Eagles also signed the NFL's leading rusher, DeMarco Murray. While occasionally dirty and uh, mostly good at playing football, And and Sue moved from the Lions to the Dolphins. The Jets acquired former New York star Darrell Rivas, and wide receiver Brandon Marshall. A lot of these individual moves are interesting. They can be discussed. Uh, But for me, it's most fascinating to look at all of this collectively because it really feels like every player on every team, except for Tom Brady and maybe like a third-string running back on the Cardinals, has either been cut or traded or signed with a new team. And I think that this is actually a feature for the NFL, that this in large part explains the popularity of professional football. Um, What do you... Think about that, Mike. I think the uh,
3: third string uh, running back on the Cardinals, it has just been announced that uh – in, what's his name? He's been cut. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, it's also because that trades don't happen during the year. I'm really thinking about why it's happened, and the explanations are fascinating. But part of the reason they're fascinating is that they don't go far enough. So the salary cap increased by a little more than they thought it would. But over the last couple of years, you know, it's gone from 123 to 133 to 143 million. So that, that you know, opens up some purse strings. And then people uh, have been saying that they just think GMs are riskier ballsier less risk averse slash they look at guys who get fired after two years and so you make your impact now we that won't could... we won't go for it on fourth down
2: but we're gonna cut every player on the team
3: well right the gms will hire the guy the <laughs> coaches who are extremely conservative or maybe they think look these coaches are never going to go for it on fourth down so we have to uh put together a crazy roster and it is a feature for the league but it's also true that not, not all these moves can be smart because it's competitive and it's a zero-sum game. So I'm wondering if you think that the Eagles' moves are as crazy as they seem to me.
0: They don't look crazy to me. They look like someone who's been given the keys to the office rearranging the furniture. I mean the, the only reason all of this looks so surprising is that the NFL is so hidebound when it comes to how teams operate – and there's this guiding principle that stability and continuity matter, which is total baloney because the churn on NFL rosters is enormous from year to year. If you look at, at most teams, and I don't have – there are probably precise numbers out there, but my estimate would be that over three to four years, the churn on, a, on an individual roster is probably close to 80 or 90 percent. So for a team like Philadelphia – To make very high profile churns all at once seems striking when in fact it's probably nothing more than Chip Kelly who has personnel control now saying, you know, I didn't like all of the players that I inherited and I'm going to make changes and they're going to look radical and they're going to look arbitrary because I'm going to trade LaShawn McCoy even though I don't have someone to replace him just yet and maybe I won't get the guy that I want to replace him. It seems logical that a coach who has some creativity, who has this lack of fear, who maybe didn't grow up as an assistant coach in the NFL, would be willing to do this.
3: Yeah, I think that's fine in the general. I think there's a good case to be made. In the specific, Sam Bradford.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, Bill Barnwell wrote on Grantland, I hope I'm remembering right, who, who said this, that the knock on Chip Kelly was never his lack of Smart or savvy. Or it's his right. impatience. And there is a, a definite feeling that he wants to like make every move that you would make over two or three seasons in one season. And I, I think there is a kind of, um, I don't know if it's like hyper rationality or just imposing the same standards on the star players that he would on everyone else on the roster. This idea that we're going to churn over the mm-hmm. top just as so we would turn over the bottom. And maybe that Makes as much sense, but just you know, switching out a quarterback. I think you're right that continuity doesn't particularly matter in the NFL, but it's just not done as often. Just to be, be like, all right, we're going to take this guy things? and send away that guy. Is,
0: if it's not done simply because it's not done, then doing it doesn't seem that striking. But you're right, Mike. I mean, the two quarterbacks on the Philadelphia Eagles, I think, have the worst yards per passing in the NFL for the last two seasons.
3: Right. And and the thing about Bradford isn't that he's bad. I will plausibly buy that a uh, talent evaluator Chip Kelly can say, hey, Foles look great to you. I could do it with Bradford. It's the health. I mean, how can you... How can you go into the season confident that this guy's going to be there? And even if your premise is that, ah, but with Sanchez as the backup, we'll be okay, mm, the past sort of shows that that might not be true. And no matter how much of a genius or an unconventional thinker you are, wouldn't you have to concede that the week you go from starter to backup, there's going to be a drop-off and you're building that into your season? It just seems like to be inviting – inviting a z-
0: near-certain injury. Are we doing what the daily media do, though, which is to draw conclusions based on incomplete information? I and mean, we don't know that Chip Kelly's done. We don't know that Sam Bradford's going to be the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia <laughs> <to start laughs> Eagles.
3: Everyone's be... after him. <laughs> <That> everyone's would... <laughs> clamoring to get that guy. <laughs> yeah,
2: that would, that would uh, be highly logical that he would be the starting quarterback. Um, my, um, well, I hasn't of, been a draft my, yet. My, my b- bigger-picture point here, well, that's true, is that each sport has its own way of selling hope baseball has spring training and all the players being in the best shape of their lives. We just talked about college basketball and fans hope all year that each uh, team is going to be one of the 68 in the tournament. So you're hopeful about that. And then once the tournament starts, everyone can be a potential Cinderella. But I think that one of the big reasons that the NFL has become the most successful sports entity um, in this country is that nobody sells hope better than the NFL. There's a long list of teams that's gone from worst to first, it's why people watch the draft because first-year players come in they and actually have, have a direct influence on how the season goes that Eagles new starting quarterback could come from the draft seven. And then there's the massive amount of player movement in the offseason and fans claim to want loyalty, why aren't the players on the same team anymore? Why can't they all, you know, be like uh, Roger Staubach and Cal Ripken or, you know, in- insert your favorite longtime uh player here. But what fans actually want more than continuity and loyalty is hope. And when you switch every player on the team, then – you can make the argument like, oh, the Saints were disappointing last year. Now we're just going to have every position is going to be filled with a new player. And so now we can just buy the new jerseys of the new players. And if it was the same guys in those same positions who were disappointing last year, you're going to go into the season as a fan and be like, oh, it's that asshole again. It's like, now it's a new asshole. And maybe we'll like come to hate them eventually. Or in but... the case of the Jets, two season the goes asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but Brian Curtis wrote about this for Grandland and basketball context. But with... Um, guys like Adrian Wojnarski for Yahoo, it's like exponentially more popular, the posts they write about trade rumors and free agency than the ones about actual games. And we're like in this era now, Brian called the trade rumor era, where fans care more about the possibility of how their team is going to be in the upcoming season or next season than how they're actually doing in the game that you're watching right now. But the corollary to that seems to be that if you look at the sort of the level of vitriol
0: that Chip Kelly has suffered since making all of these moves, you know, on the one hand, fans want to see all this churn. It's exciting. I mean, on some level, it's like, but they're making trades in football. That never happens. And now it's happening. We should be psyched that this is happening. It's interesting. It gives, you know, armchair GMs more opportunity to scrutinize and evaluate and, I guess, make instant criticisms of the moves as if we wish they hadn't happened in the first
2: place. I guess the hope gradient on the Eagles was a little skewed because they were actually good or have been good for the past few years. But if you, like, go on any Saints, like, site or message board or anything, you know, guilty as charged. Everyone has talked themselves into all of these moves, even though, like, the national media says, like, how could you trade Jimmy Graham? They're like, Jimmy Graham is a bad locker room guy, and, you know, we need the center. for. And it, it could all be true, but it's, like, super easy in the offseason when you're, like, months and months away from games to talk yourself into anything that your team does, even if they've shown themselves to be incompetent in the past. Like, I bet Jets fans are excited about everything that's happening and they think that the team's going to be good. Josh by you the way bet. on Josh by
0: the way on That's not true. <laughs> Josh by the way on that Saints message board. He's paper bag guy 35. You you bet they're excited. Yeah, they're going crazy.
3: Uh, and <laughs> why? Because they were good with uh, essentially these defensive backs and so now we're getting the same defensive backs back. Mike Francesa had a good take on that, which is in sports, if you just do the basic minimal competent things, if you don't just if you just don't screw up and whiff, your fans are gonna love you. I, the, and the weird thing that we're saying is it seems like some of these teams did screw up. The Eagles are a separate category. I think nationally people are looking at the Saints and saying, I don't know what people, but maybe people who are a little informed say, this is all motivated by mismanagement of the salary cap. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Get... Sure. Yeah, that's, that's the truth. The truth is the Jimmy Graham trade wasn't motivated based on talent evaluation or a great tight end versus a good center. I mean, those two positions are not equivalent because they don't. They, they had to get out of potentially paying Jimmy Graham. And I think the Jets – yeah, okay, great. Now they're going to have a seven-win team? I don't know. They're just not as bad as last year. They just did the de minimis, and that's enough to give fans hope. Fans won't have so much hope. But
2: it, there is something, like, that you can hold on to. Like, it isn't absurd to think that the Saints could make the playoffs Of course, this oh, year yes, yeah. in large yeah. part or because, the, like, Max the Unger night. does really good, and they have a good running game. Like, it's not ridiculous. Like, it's probably not true, but it's not ridiculous. And, of course, like, the undercurrent – Of all this is just the fact that these players are totally expendable, way more expendable than in other sports. The average career length is so short; they don't get that much guaranteed money. They're just cut um, as soon as they get into their upper twenties. It's hyper rational; it makes sense as far as like if you look at the actual tables of how good players perform at that age. But it's just so unfeeling, and fans just could not care less. Right. And let's not also diminish the importance of the cap. I know you
0: mentioned it, but for the Saints particularly, I mean, bloated cap, get rid of some guys. It maybe seems like, ooh, we're letting Jimmy Graham go. You know, We're trading Jimmy Graham. But ultimately, they're, believe me, it's the GM and the assistant GM, the capologist, making some very basic decisions about how much money they can afford to spend.
3: And it's why everyone hates Drew Brees because he just wants to get the money they promised him. Asshole. He's paper bag 78 on that message board, (laughs) by the way.
2: (laughs) We don't talk about hockey all that often on the Hang Up and Listen podcast. I'll admit none of us follow the sport obsessively, except for the fact that Mike is now moonlighting as Sparky the Dragon, the New York Islanders mascot. Uh, But recent events have led us to believe that the Toronto Maple Leafs were currently tied for second to last in the NHL's Eastern Conference, should be the official professional hockey team of Hang Up and Listen. Consider that in the last few months, a story came out that a player on the Leafs wanted the head coach fired. Another player said crowd supported the team better in Buffalo and Detroit than in Toronto. The team refused to salute the, their home crowd after winning a game. The Canadian network TSN put a tweet live on the air during its trade deadline coverage that claimed that the Maple Leafs' Joffrey Lupel slept with teammate Dion Phaneuf's wife, Alicia Cuthbert, a.k.a. Jack Bauer's daughter from 24 And that, in the end, is why we love the Maple Leafs, because they have a player named Joffrey. Joining us to discuss Joffrey and his teammates and the hate-hate relationship that the team has developed with its fans is Bruce Arthur, a sports columnist for the Toronto Star. Welcome, Bruce.
4: Now, I should warn you, before you make this allegiance official, is that I'm not from Toronto. I moved to Toronto 14 years ago. And if you live anywhere in the rest of Canada and you're not from Ontario, which is our, the province that Toronto's in, you tend to hate the Toronto Maple Leafs because they're on Hockey Night in Canada first every night, all of that. Since moving here, what I found out is that being a Leafs fan, those people that we resented in the rest of the country for so long, being a Leafs fan is agony. Like, if you have any, if you if you accidentally develop a rooting interest in this team, I'm just here to warn you, this could go really, really bad <laughs> for
2: you. I, th- I think we're gonna just keep a safe distance, like a, a kind of a nice ironic, ironic fandom. And I think I, we'll I, just present
3: I, the facts, and then uh, fandom will not become many of our listeners. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, in your column uh, recently, you wrote that the Leafs are mining new depths of toxicity day after day, um, and I read, you know, some of the examples here. They some of these seem like kind of picky Um a but bit is it- media ish? is this actually having a psychological effect on the fan base or are these things just kind of amusing tidbits that just happen to be going along with a team that's not winning games?
4: Now, here's the thing. It's both. Uh, the trick is with the Toronto Maple Leafs, I mean, they, they have a lot of the same problems that a lot of other teams do, like especially losing teams. So problems happen. Things come apart. That's just normal. But the difference is, is, in the environment that they're in, and given the recent history that they've had, and again, like this is not the worst that the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise has been, because during the Harold Ballard years, he was as bad an owner as there has ever been in sports. It wasn't just funny, weird, fever, interesting, it was truly dark and awful. This team, though, over the last few years, has been a, a re, kind of resoundingly disappointing team. They... Last year, they collapsed down the stretch, missed the playoffs, finished twenty-second in the NHL. Year before, they made the playoffs for the first time since two thousand four. Blew a four-one lead in the third period of Game Seven, which is very hard to do in Boston. Year before, collapse. uh, Year before, collapse. This year, they collapsed early. They really like they just they didn't wait until later in the season. They just blew off the doors in mid-season. And what's happened is there's been a kind of an accumulation of. Not just disappointment, but anger and pressure. And and the result is an environment in which this team is not just coming apart on the ice, but all the little stuff, all the little picayune things that to the outside don't seem very big, they blow up in a way here that isn't just a big media market blow up. It's kind of a fever, like a fever has gripped a lot of the parties that have been around this team this year. Sometimes it's the media, sometimes it's the fans, and sometimes it's the players. Like you mentioned that the, they didn't salute their fans. thing. This takes a little bit of background, but this is a silly thing. They did a thing after the game, they've been doing it for a few years, where after every game, they, uh, when they win, they go to center ice and they all stand in a circle and they raise their sticks to the fans. I think the New York Rangers started doing this. It is a cynical and ridiculous thing. Like It, does, it, it means nothing. The Leafs have probably the worst home crowd, pound for pound, in the NHL because it's a bunch of guys in suits and nobody really makes any noise. It's like going to a theater. And so what they decided after this one game, they, they'd just gotten pounded in two straight games. The town was going crazy media fans, everybody. And they play this game on a Thursday night and they play Tampa Bay. who are really good. And they beat Tampa Bay and they, and they, they play really well. And they're up three goals after the second period, if I remember. And the fans give them the golf clap. Like they don't, they hardly anything. So after the game, they go to surround the goaltender and they make a choice on the ice. They say, we are not going to do the thing at center ice. Now, leaving aside the thing at center ice is stupid and cynical. This team made a choice that they didn't want to salute their fans because they felt mistreated by both the fans and the media, I think. And that was the beginning of a series of just, this team is kind of cracked under the pressure. Like, and you've seen it in little ways and big ways. And the result is at the end of this season, everybody involved has lost their mind at some point, everybody. (laughs) And, I've made the argument, I don't think there's another team in North America that has the combination of the size of fan base, because Toronto is the third biggest market in North America, and the single focus of that fandom. Because in New York, you got a ton of teams, even the Yankees, at least mm-hmm. at the Mets, right? In, in LA, the Lakers, there's at least the Clippers. Like, There's no single focus organism like this. And this is the season where everything that's kind of been going bad gradually over the last or five, and then if you want to go back further, 50 years, it's all starting to kind of come to a head. And, yeah,
0: I think fever is the best word for it. They've been bad for a while. You said 50 years, but they haven't made the playoffs in like nine years. This is a big market team by NHL
2: standards. And every NHL team makes the playoffs. It's a major accomplishment. (laughs) It's pretty hard to do. Um,
0: Shouldn't they be sucking even harder now? Uh, There are two really good players that are going to go one, two in the draft, Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel. And it would seem to be, uh, and and tanking is, is fully within their abilities. And they've done a little tanking, right?
4: Well, here's the problem. The, the management group, I think, is smarter than they've been in a long time. Brian Shanahan used to work for the league. He's done his 1st kind of management job here. He's assembled some really smart guys. I don't know if they're going to work out, but they're smart. The problem they had is that they decided to tank accidentally. Like the Buffalo Sabres this year, people talk about the Philadelphia 76ers as a tanking model, and they should. The Buffalo Sabres this year, they set fire to that team, and they didn't quite salt the ground, but they came close. Like if you if you go by puck possession numbers, your second worst team in the league attempts about, ooh, let's say 44 to 46% of the available shots on the ice. We throw our pucks at your net at a 44%, uh, 44% of the time, you 56. The Buffalo Sabres are down in the 36-37 range. They're really, really bad. But they did that on purpose. The Toronto Maple Leafs came into the season and they kind of went, well, maybe we'll try to make the playoffs. And then it went sideways and everything went wrong. And so they're accidentally tanking. Shanahan was hired, I think, in April last year. If he'd been more assertive, if he'd just go out, gone ahead and stripped his thing to the ground, they would have had a real shot at getting Connor McDavid. And I've seen Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel play some at the world juniors. Connor McDavid, if nothing goes terribly wrong, is going to be generational in a way that kind of hockey passes the torch from guy to guy, from Howe to Orr to Gretzky to Lemieux, I guess to Crosby. This, he's going to be that guy. And they would have had a shot at him. He wants to play here. He's from around here.
0: Well, like fifteen um, games to go. Do they still have a shot to get to number one?
4: Uh, they have a shot, but it's like right now they're at like nine percent at the number one pick. Whereas the Buffalo Sabers, if they finish last in the league, this is the last year it's going to happen. They'll get a hundred percent chance at either one or two, right? So that's what you want. Like if you get in the playoffs, we well, have a six point two five percent chance to win the championship. If you just by all the teams, but. Right now, Buffalo Buffalo's got it figured out. They're going to get a great player. The Toronto Maple Leafs might get the third or fourth or fifth player in the draft, and that's very, very Toronto Maple Leafs.
3: It seems to me that for all the ills of this team, it doesn't have one of those things that terrible, all-time terrible teams have. But tell me if I'm wrong. Do the players hate each other? It seems like they have each other's back, <laughs> and they hate the fans more than uh, more than uh, anything
4: else.
0: Because it did seem like they did salute somebody after
4: that <laughs> that game. <laughs> There, there is obviously conflict within the room because, again, when you're this bad, bad things happen. But they, there is a bunker mentality on this team, like because they're all they've got. <laughs> That's really it. Because in this town, as much as there is adulation, if you're a leaf, there's kind of a baseline of adulation. People love certain people love you. When it goes bad, I mean, it goes bad. Like it's, and so, I don't know if they hate each other. I'm sure some guys in that room don't like some other guys in that room, but if there's any sign of them banding together in a common cause to show the fans and show the media and show everybody else, like there's a bunch of teams that are picking on their captain, Dion Phaneuf this year, because a lot of people don't like Dion Phaneuf in this league
2: mm-hmm. for
4: a bunch of different reasons. But there's been no sign of banding around. This is like a common cause networking. Like they just, they've been bad and they've gotten, they've been on an incredible bad streak for what, two and a half months now and there's been there's no sign that there's anything else there.
2: So with the team being so bad, what I don't quite understand is why is it still like a wine and cheese crowd at the games? Cuz this is the like nightmare of the the future of sports that only rich people will be able to go to mm-hmm. the games and the crowds will be doing the golf clap and there'll be no connection between the fans in the arena and the players on the ice. But shouldn't you be able to get tickets for like one cent? Like why, are, why aren't why are there more diehards in the crowd like lustily booing or like cheering when something good happens?
4: Well, the, what's happened here is the TV ratings have started to fall off a bit, and that's something new. Like they're, they're dropping down to levels that are kind of unusual. But in terms of getting in the building, part of it is you can write off tickets, right? Like your, tax-wise, you can write them off. So a ton of law firms and corporations and all that – They've got the lower bowl locked in, because this is still the place to be, as depressing as it is. Now, the <laughs> difference is...
2: What does that well, say about well, Toronto? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, no,
4: No, well, the restaurant seems good, but that is not good for our city. That's an advertisement. Um, the, the thing with this team is that there was always at least a... You could talk yourself into, if you were a bit of an idiot or blind or ignorant or didn't want to know, you could talk yourself into the fact that this team might not be awful over the last few years, they just happened to wind up that way. You know what I mean? And management was saying, like, well, we were better than this, bad. We got unlucky, whatever, whatever. The kind of fidelity of the Toronto Maple Leafs fan it was a little easier. We're going to see if they tear this thing apart next year and it deliberately ice a team that isn't very good. That's something that Toronto's never done, literally never done. Toronto, as a, a NHL city, has never tanked. They've accidentally been awful but they've never intentionally said, okay, we're going to be bad.
0: They might just say, um, they might just say enough already.
4: <laughs> um, don't don't but, encourage him. But, but the problem is there's just so many people, right? And people still, I once asked Chris Kelly of the Boston Bruins why it was different playing for an original 16, And, and everyone asks this, everyone says, isn't it great that there's an original 16th team, da-da-da-da-da. And it, it kind of, it's empty to me, right? Why does that mean something? And Chris Kelly kind of explained it to me. He said, the thing was when you play for an original 16. Is that you talk to fans? When you do talk to fans, they'll have stories about watching it with their father, or their grandfather, or their grandmother. Like it becomes a family, a generational thing, and it's a deeper fandom because they've grown up uh, kind of with this team, and that it means more to them. There's something deeper there. With Toronto, there's a there's a depth there which is incredible and which has not been dissuaded by 50 years of failure. Toronto Maple Leafs have never won a Stanley Cup when there were more than six teams in the league. That is an astonishing. (laughs) astonishing failure, right? Like, when it was six teams in the league, it was them and Montreal. Montreal was better. When they expanded, Montreal still won Stanley Cups. Toronto never did again and hasn't made the Stanley Cup final since. Like, it's, it's really been... Uh, they're like the Cubs or the Mets or the Knicks in, in the later years. That's kind of... It's all of those things tied into one franchise. Well, the and amazing it's, thing it's is... The,
3: the amazing thing is the Rangers didn't either. So only four of the six teams ever
4: won? Yeah, no, Montreal was really good, man. Like, Montreal was, really had something going
2: on. Well, Bruce, every uh, unhappy team is unhappy in its own way. <laughs> and we are, we are certainly enjoying the unhappiness of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Thank you for uh, allowing us to bathe in it. My pleasure. Bruce Arthur is a sports columnist for the Toronto Star. All right, now it is time for After Balls. Mike is a big fan of the fringe bubble.
0: <laughs> I, explain, I explain? Explain the fringe yeah, bubble,
3: Mike. I'll read the quote. I'll read the quote. This was uh, Jeff Eisenberg writing for Yahoo's basketball, college basketball blog, The Dagger. Dagger. He, introduced, he introduced a term that I hadn't heard before that is both useful and disturbing, talking about why Miami didn't get into the uh, tournament. Noted, the Hurricanes did have a road win against Syracuse, a home win over NC State, and a victory against fringe bubble team Illinois. I don't know. I don't know the science of soap that much. I would think bubbles are the sort of things that have to have rounded edges, and fringes would be antithetical. But we so need a way to describe the guys that are almost the guys that are near the guys that have the ear of the guys that might be getting into the tournament. They're in
2: the bubble conversation.
3: Enter the fringe bubble.
2: Yeah. All right. What is your fringe bubble?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's not out of uh, keeping with the idea of the fringe bubble <laughs> itself. Just a. A plea, a notation, a creed de corps. You know, this is this is something we all know, but it just really hit me viscerally what the trend in sports is, which is to identify things that we like, events that we like, sporting events that we like, the Olympics, the NCAA tournament, the Super Bowl, and then just talk the hell out of them for so long before they exist that we just end up hating them. I mean these are extremely valuable properties. So, of course, by logic's sake, what we're going to do is hype them. But, man, is it horrible. And we all know this with the Super Bowl, and there's a way to tune out for it. And the Olympics are absolutely crazy with all the attendant nonsense about the uh, stories of personal triumph. But the same has absolutely happened with the NCAA tournament. And is there less to say than debating those last four in and first four out Endlessly. I mean, we could we could tune out ESPN and ESPN2 and ESPNU and all the ESPNs and all the CBSs, but it inundates us on sports radio for the week before the tournament because that's all college basketball is, is this three-week tournament. The chatter that happens beforehand is so useless, filled with such jargon. And really, even when you're talking about a Super Bowl, you're talking about who might win a game. Here, there is so much talk about mediocre teams and which team is more mediocre than the other and using phrases like S-curve and BPI and strength of schedule and then trying to turn anything that happens that's joyful into a marketing opportunity. So you have this guy, Peter Hooley, an Australian who hit a big shot for all, but he put him in the tournament against Stony Brook. And let's also note that his mother died January 30th, so just a little more than a month ago. That's notable. I don't want you not to note it. But how CBS turned this into a marketing event.
0: Peter, we've become familiar. With your story um, and what happened to you this season, and losing your mom, you went home to Australia, missed part of the season. What role did your team and your teammates play in helping you deal with your grief?
4: Uh, they were just there uh, every time uh, I needed them to. Every time I fell, they'd uh, pick me up, and they made sure that they—I uh, knew that there was a family over here waiting for me for when I came back. Uh, they embraced me with open arms as soon as I got off the plane, essentially, and. Uh, Every time I I struggle uh, on or off the court since I've been back, they've been there to to really lift me up and make sure that I keep fighting on. And uh, I love this team, and uh, I couldn't be prouder to be a part of it.
2: Peter, I want to share with you uh, some tweets from your twin sister, Emma, who, of course, as you know, is in Australia. She she sent out these tweets last night. Uh, This is from her Twitter account. So, so proud of you, at PeterHooley12. I'm speechless. I know there's one angel who is smiling down on you big time right now. She also went on to say, if you didn't believe in angels, I think what just happened should prove just how magical they really are. Peter, as somebody, I lost my dad uh, in November to cancer as well. My heart goes out to you and your family. I know there's good days and there's bad. Uh, Take me through the emotions of winning such a game but being disconnected from your sister, your twin sister in Australia and your thoughts of your mom here first we have
3: Seth Davis making mention of it that's I'm fine with that but then we have Doug Gottlieb quoting his twin sister Emma talking about if you don't believe in angels and what you've done is taking a nice event which was a kid luckily getting a rebound and hitting a shot which is what a three-point shooter is supposed to do and it happened and I'm glad for you Great Danes and now you've layered on angels and accused us that if we don't believe in angels there's something wrong with us oh and Doug Gottlieb is not being cynical and he's not being maudlin because as he has to present to us, he had a loved one who passed away too. It's maddening. This is the madness of March Madness. <laughs> Luckily with the tournament, when they play the games, we could stop talking about bracketology. And by the way, Joe Lunardi is doing a commercial or... Something. Someone cut together a Joe Lunardi tape for with a commercial for, what's it called? Transparent Incandescent?
0: Insurgent. Divergent. divergent. Insurgent. Insurgent. Divergent Insurgent? I believe ESPN cut that together. Oh,
3: my God. I mean, I'll play the audio for you here, but you have to realize the visuals as Joe Lunardi is swiping a number five seed left and right are people swinging on helicopters and (laughs) running from fireballs. This couldn't have less to do with the other thing. If you do believe in angels, please, the better angels of my nature, just let me watch these games and shut the hell up. Joe Lunardi, bracketology, angels on my shoulder, Doug Gottlieb. Play a basketball game and (laughs) shut up. Hype. It's a part of this game. Higher seed should advance. End of story. But March—it's a time for insurgents.
4: Find every last one of them.
3: For those who defy the odds. She's the one. Who play without fear.
2: You need to be strong. and brave.
3: Who don't listen to hype. To hype. <sighs>
2: But, but, uh, no, you're right. You're right. We, we just did do a whole kind of segment talking about Texas and now I feel deep shame. A deep, <laughs> what, did a you deep, deep, shame. Am I, am I
3: supposed to watch a uh, Disney Cinderella based on our conversation? Could, could Volo <laughs> cut that together? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Cinderella's and the big dance. Why not?
2: I think maybe we'll, we'll have him not do that, but imagine yeah. what it would have sounded like if he did. Uh, Stefan. What is your fringe bubble?
0: You may have heard that the worst soccer team in the world emerged victorious in one of the first qualifying matches for the 2018 World Cup. The country is Bhutan. Hail, Bhutan.
2: The Yellow Dragons.
0: The Yellow Dragons beat Sri Lanka 1 0 on the road in Colombo in the first leg of their Asian Confederation qualifier last week. The second leg is Tuesday, which is Monday, our time, back in Timpu, the capital of Bhutan. A capacity crowd is expected at Changlimitang Stadium, which I've mispronounced, but I have to say it looks like one of the coolest arenas on earth, surrounded by Bhutanese architecture with the Himalayas rising above. The stadium was built in the 1970s, totally rebuilt in 2008 for the coronation of the fourth kesar namjel wangchuk it's mo- that's the king. It's mostly used for archery, which is the national sport of Bhutan, but it's also used for public events including the 2011 royal wedding of the king. FIFA paid for a turf field in 2012. Our fearless leader, Sepp Blatter, cut the ribbon, of course, securing one more vote in his umpteenth re-election bid. Bhutan's win over Sri Lanka in the away leg was pretty huge. Since joining FIFA in 2000, Bhutan had never entered World Cup qualifying. It apparently only did so this time because FIFA offered $300,000 to any nation that entered the early rounds. In international play, Bhutan has an overall record of 4-4-51 and 51. It scored 32 goals and allowed 220. It's 0-12 against nearby Nepal. Before the Sri Lanka match, it was 209th in FIFA's rankings of the world's 209 national teams. Bhutan's other international wins came against Guam, Bangladesh, and the Caribbean island of Montserrat. If that last one, bhutan Montserrat, rings a bell, that's because it drew a fair amount of attention when it was played in 2002. The game was staged on the same day as the World Cup final that year between Germany and Brazil. The idea was a great one. While the two best teams in the world were competing for the championship, the two worst teams would play in the name of pride, sportsmanship and publicity. The game was conceived, arranged, and funded by a Dutch ad man and filmmaker named Johan Kramer. He faxed letters to the country's football federations and then managed to persuade FIFA to sanction the match. He also made a documentary about the game. It's called The Other Final, and I watched it over the weekend except for the gimmicky and very Euro-feeling use of a soccer ball bouncing in and out of the frame, you know, because the ball bounces around the world. The Other Final is totally charming and endearing. Montserrat is struggling five years after the volcanic eruption that covered the island in ash. Bhutan is only starting to appreciate and play football. Cable TV had arrived only a few years earlier and students are bringing back the game from India. Neither country knows anything about the other, which makes the match all the more appealing. You really couldn't ask for two more disparate places and peoples, the fun-loving Caribbeans versus the chill Bhutanese, whose philosophy is embodied by a wonderful into-the-camera monologue about gross national happiness and the humanitarian principles of sports. Because Montserrat Stadium is still under five feet of ash, the game is scheduled for Tim Poo. Bhutan's coach dies a week before the game, so the filmmakers fly in a Dutch replacement. Montserrat's coach, an Englishman and cop on the island, refuses to travel to Bhutan because the local federation screws with his roster. Montserrat's journey takes seven legs, but the team's spirits are buoyed by the singing of their theme song, Hot, Hot, Hot. Hot. This was Buster Point Dexter song. (laughs) You bet. Uh, This was before the new field in Chong Limitong Stadium. So the pitch was in less than perfect condition for the game. Lots of puddles, lots of mud, which doesn't make these decent high school level teams look any better. But damn if it isn't fun to watch. Montserrat gets off to a good start, controlling the play for the first couple of minutes. But then in the fourth minute, a Bhutan header seems to skip off of a rock or a bump in the field and pass the hopeless Montserrat goalkeeper, who looks like he might be 50. The film makes excellent use of the Bhutan radio broadcast. The announcer is magnificent. The Montserrat defenders are like big trees and get the ball out of there. When Bhutan scores again, here's his call. The
2: Montserrat team
3: so depressed Cesar Lake is sitting down it seems that the goalkeeper of Montserrat doesn't want to get up anymore he is so desolated,
1: completely alone here high up in the Himalayas where luck is not on his side today oh I have so much compassion for Mr. Lake
0: I'm not spoiling anything here by telling you that Bhutan won 4-0. The team's joined in some native dancing on the field after the game. A Montserrat player takes off his jersey to reveal a wife-beater that says, We love Bhutan. Thank you. The trophy splits in half. This
2: is also field good. Much better than March Madness. Go Bhutan! Bhutan's record in international games sounds like Texas's record against the top 50. <laughs> Hey-oh! <laughs> Take that, Rick Barnes. Josh, Boom, Josh, what's your... Fringe bubble. So I was going to provide a nice counterpoint, Mike, to yeah. all the reasons we love March Madness by talking about the worst things about the NCAA tournament. But since you already did that, I'm going to do mine anyway. <laughs> and then we can have like a bubble conversation about which of our reasons have the have the highest BPI and deserve to make it to the play-in game of hateability. So buzzer beaters, upsets. We like those. Bill Raftery saying onions. Mm-hmm. That's good. But here's, here's my three— He's doing re- the finals this year. He is. I'm really yeah. psyched about that. Good for yeah. Bill Raftery. I have three reasons to hate March Madness. Number one, everyone telling you who they picked in their bracket. Oh, God. Sure. <laughs> so this is true. not as bad as Stefan telling you about how Andrew Luck did because Andrew Luck is on his fantasy team. But it's close. It's like in the conversation of being as yeah. bad— as telling you who's on your fantasy team. It's pretty much um, the same and we'll be thing.
3: back and we'll be back with Dickie V's bracket. Who cares?
2: Well, the reason that I don't think it's exactly the same is that it provides this communal activity around a really great sporting event. It's not like we need an excuse as a populace to all be like thinking about and talking about the NFL, but this brings us all together. We we fill out these brackets, we're in the office pool it, you know, people who don't normally like sports. It's all it's all good in in theory. But nobody really cares that you're seven for eight in the first round. I got seven of those eight games on Thursday morning. And that you pick Gonzaga to go to the final four. You know, seven to 74 billion people pick Gonzaga to go to the final four. It's the equivalent of describing the frequency of your bowel movements. We all have them. Some are more successful than others. Nobody wants to hear about anybody else's. Just keep that, keep that in mind. Just keep in mind bowel movements whenever you talk about your brackets. It'll be a good corrective. Uh, reason number two. Tate, March Madness. Bonuses for coaches. Ah. We all know NCAA, a bunch of hypocrites. Players should be paid. blah bitty, blah bitty, blue, blah, blah. You've heard it all. But I find the bonus payouts the coaches get for getting their teams in the tournaments to be a special kind of perversity. Iowa State's Fred Hoiberg. He gets 50K. Johnny Jones of LSU, 100 Mark Gottfried gets $126,667. Sean Miller of Arizona gets $50,000 for winning the Pac-12 tournament, $50,000 for the Pac-12 regular season, $40,000 for winning 25 or more games. Other bonuses, based on winning tournament games, I'm definitely rooting against Arizona. Um, Last year, Tony Bennett of Virginia got $100,000 for making the Sweet 16, lost out on another $250,000 when uh virginia lost to michigan state by 2 i bet he was kind of upset about that about that loss if virginia had won the title he would have gotten a million dollars in bonuses a million and they, show, and they show the cheerleader with a
3: tear down her eye
2: <laughs> we all know that coaches get paid based on how well the players do but it's usually not this literal There's something even more disgusting than usual about the idea of unpaid college athletes playing extremely hard to win a game, and then having $250,000 go directly into their coach's Italian suit pocket as a direct consequence of that effort. Boo! Boo! I I am angrily booing at this. All right. Reason number three, Tate March Madness, Seth Davis. Stefan is just bowing his head and... Anger and so a second and Seth
3: Davis reference, yeah. I'm playing a Okay, them.
2: here is a random selection of tweets from one of CBS's top college basketball studio guys. Jimmy Chitwood drinks green juice. Rico Gathers drinks green juice. Cameron Payne drinks green juice. Damian Lillard drinks Green juice. TJ McConnell drinks green juice. Lamarcus Aldridge drinks green juice. Adam LaRoche drinks green juice. Kyrie Irving definitely drank his green juice tonight. Extra kale, I'll bet. Tim Howard drinks green juice. Des Bryant drinks green juice. Basically everybody in the whole world drinks green juice. What is Seth that reference Davis, to? Davis What is this magical green juice? As Jeff Waxman documented on Deadspin back in February, it's total quackery, an elixir sold by Seth Davis's mom and promoted relentlessly by Davis on Twitter, who repeats claims that it helped his mother beat stage four cancer. Mrs. Davis also sells alkaline water, which claims to raise the body's pH or something. And with Seth Davis claims is backed by studies from a doctor who has been reprimanded repeatedly by the FDA for making phony claims about various and sundry things. I was watching a game on CBS the other week, and Davis said on the air that a player who had a great game drank his green juice that day. So it's not just on Twitter. If he says this during the NCAA tournament, CBS needs to shoot him into outer space or at least pour a bucket of slime over his head. Or maybe fire him and not let him talk about that stuff on the air. Damn, that's cold, Stefan. Green juice served cold. Um, This guy is the Jenny McCarthy of televised sports commentary. He's also just not very good at what he does. I don't know what he... uh, he brings to the table. He is the worst thing.
3: He is the A- son of Clinton confidant Lonnie <laughs>
0: Davis.
2: Yeah. He's, uh, you can't You can't choose your parents, but you can choose whether you shill for green juice. And Seth Davis has made that choice repeatedly and on the air. Anti-Seth Davis, I am. I do not like green juice. Uh, we'd love your feedback <laughs> on what we talked about today. You can email us at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash Please subscribe to hang up and listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating become a fan of hang up and listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our producer is Mike Folo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang up and listen is part of the panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, don't drink green juice. Thanks for listening.